0: And hello out there to all you Brooklyn folk and beyond. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here on the Bedford & Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And while we are focused on 1937 since 1962 within the context of the show, uh, it, it is extremely informed by the story of Charlie Evans and everything that came before and uh, I'm so thrilled to invite onto the show tonight uh, the Charlie Ebbets biographer, John G. Zinn. And, and uh, without further ado, welcome to the show, John.
1: Thank you, Sam. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Of course. And, and you know, for me, it was so fantastic coming across your book because I think that uh, it, it's, it's just Charlie Ebbets. Everybody knows the name Ebbets because of Ebbets Field the world over. Uh, uh, And and like I was saying to you, it's probably the most famous ballpark that's not around anymore other than the old Yankee Stadium. Um, But before we get into uh, the deep cut of Charlie Evans, I just want to uh, I'm just curious as to your personal biography, uh, uh, you know, where your uh, both your baseball history and your personal history and 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 what drew you to write about Charlie Evans.
1: Well, I grew up in northern New Jersey um, in the 1950s, and for reasons I never bothered, my parents were Brooklyn Dodger fans, and I never bothered to ask them why. They weren't from Brooklyn, to my knowledge. They only went to Brooklyn once or twice, but because they were Dodger fans, I became a Dodger fan, and then um, I got interested uh, in the dead ball era, the period between 1901 and 1919, uh, and the Dodgers in particular in that time frame and maybe 10 years ago or so my son and I were working on a book about Ebbets Field and I wrote um, an essay about Charles Ebbets and before that My impression of Ebbets was that he was kind of a a good-natured bumbler who just sort of muddled his way through things, and uh, it was kind of almost a semi-comical character. Uh, And then when I got to looking into him in more detail, I realized that that really isn't who he was, that uh, he certainly, I can understand where their reputation came from, but he really was a... A good owner who did a lot for baseball, a lot for Brooklyn, um, and was you know was worthy of his own biography.
0: Yeah, there hadn't been much written uh, to this breath, really. Uh, of course, uh, and I believe it was uh, is it Thomas Steele who wrote the genealogy of the Evans family. Is that correct?
1: That's correct. Yes.
0: Yeah, and, and, that's a, and that was a good, uh, that was an
1: important source on the Ebbets family. But I think you'll find that right. most of the owners in that period, there aren't a lot of biographies of them. Uh, when I was started to work on the Ebbets biography, there wasn't, a, there weren't a lot in the way of models. Especially the owners who do have biographies are owners like uh, Connie Mack and Charles Comiskey, who right. had playing and manager careers.
0: Right, exactly, and of course, uh, just have a, a bit of a, a more pop culture from a baseball perspective. Uh, a place, uh, you know, nobody. You see Charlie. You see, I'm sorry. Uh, you see Connie Mack on MLB Network all the time. Some old footage of him sitting in the dugout with the suits, of course, and 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 it, he was infamous for for constantly flipping players all the time too. Uh, But, you know, of course, he had more success than Charlie Ebbets did. uh, But that doesn't mean that that the Brooklyn team uh, uh, didn't have success under Charlie Ebbets at certain periods. So before we get into all of that and some of the, you know, uh, obviously we want people to go out there, head to Amazon, head to Kindle, wherever you get your books, you must buy Charlie Ebbets. Uh, uh, the, uh go ahead i'm i'm going to let you do as we like to call it a shameless plug regarding your book before we get into it go ahead
1: well I think, I think you just gave it uh, and bless you for that um, I think you know i speaking immodestly uh, I think it 's a book that uh, uh you 'll learn about baseball from you know eighteen basically from Primarily from the period from 1898 to Ebbett's death in 1925, um, a lot of what, how baseball was played, uh, how, how baseball was a, a small business with a, with a national reach, um, and it's, a, it's an intriguing story, so um, I, you know, I think you, people will enjoy it.
0: Uh, one of the things that I identify with uh, in terms of Charlie is the fact that I am also, I wasn't born in Manhattan. I, I have a, a crazy up and down the East Coast history, but I i moved to New York. I moved to Manhattan when I was 10 years old. My mom's from Sheep Dead Bay. Um, and while I, I know I'm still a Manhattanite, I've adopted Brooklyn as my own. I've, as you can tell, I'm fascinated with the place. It's not just about the Dodger story, it's about the Brooklyn story. So let's start all the way from the beginning, considering, like I said, many people don't know much about this man.
1: Well, the beginning is that um, Charles Ebbets was born in Manhattan in 1859. He come, The Ebbets family goes back um, in this country, back in New York City, to like 1700. I mean, they've been around for a very long time. Um, and Ebbets, uh, like most people of that generation, didn't have a lot of education, probably the eighth grade. And he worked at a number of different jobs. He worked for an architectural firm. He worked in the publishing industry. And in 1883... The team that's known to history as the Brooklyn Dodgers was founded, and it was founded primarily by two men, Charles Byrne, who was the president, and a man by the name of Ferdinand Abel, who was the lead star. He was the majority owner. He had put most of the money into it. And when the Dodgers first took the field in May of 1883, they were uh, they were not a major league team. They were in a minor league, the Interstate League, um, and in. In baseball in those days, you needed a lot of game day employees, and that first day uh, at the first incarnation of Washington Park, Charles Ebbets was there as a game day employee, probably selling programs and taking tickets, and he worked for the Dodgers from that day until his death in April of 1925. Um, and he gradually, the front offices were very small, but he was such a good worker and such a valuable employee that he became the secretary of the club and took on a lot of the administrative work that, um, for the team and ultimately for the league. Um, in his pre-ownership period, two things stand out. One is he was an expert schedule maker. And schedule-making was a crucial issue at the time. Unlike today, uh, ticket sales are really the only source of revenue. Uh, and to make matters worse, uh, the day that most people have off is Sunday, and you can't play baseball on the East Coast on Sunday. So finding dates like holidays is crucial, and those dates are fought over. And Ebbets was a genius at working at a schedule that satisfied people. The other thing that he did to... Um, get a reputation, is that uh, the Dodgers played, as I said, at what was the first uh, incarnation of Washington Park. And in May of 1889, uh, the grandstand burns down just a week before the Dodgers are supposed to play a big Memorial Day doubleheader with the St. Louis Browns. And uh, what happens is that Ebbets is put in charge of rebuilding the, the grandstand, and in a week he gets it done. Uh, And so they were able to play on Memorial Day before a huge crowd. And those are are the two primary examples. But he basically becomes an invaluable employee to the Dodgers, takes on more and more responsibility.
0: And eventually he's able to buy into uh, the stock, of course. Um, And some of the things that, that, you know, just talking about the schedule part is – is that also something that, that you know, something that, that I, that, that resonates in your book, just like it does with, with Brooklyn itself, is this idea that it's the forgotten, uh, you know, third largest city in the, in the country, um, and that everybody is constantly kind of put, like pushing them aside and kind of being, eh, you know, it's, it's just Brooklyn. And that, that seemed to be something at the beginning of uh, of this book that that really resonates with uh, with me regarding the brooklyn story overall um and, and ironically you know charlie was was uh for the consolidation but that's a whole nother tangent um so my my question up front too is do you think some, certain things like the schedule making uh as well as building out its field should be something that regardless of, of whether or not they won pennant after pennant after pennant uh, uh, that maybe puts Charlie Ebbets into the Hall of Fame? Well, the person
1: that you can best, com- I think, best compare him to is Barney Dreyfus, who was a, ne- a peer of Ebbets and uh, basically for the same time frame, who was inducted into the Hall of Fame maybe four or five years ago. Um, and uh, Dreyfus' teams won five pennants, Ebbets won four. Now, Ebbets never won a World Series, so that kind of is a strike against him. But Dreyfus built Forbes Field in Pittsburgh, and Ebbets built Ebbets Field. They both made major contributions to the game. So, uh, you know, outside of their own team, so you know, Ebbets certainly should be in the conversation. I would think the problem today is that um, Major League, uh, the Hall of Fame, keeps changing their process for the the non modern. Uh, players and owners, and the way it's structured right now um, they're only going to look at candidates once every ten years, and they did that in two thousand and twenty two so they're not going to do it for another ten years so it's kind of a you know a, a mute point at this I, I think
0: and interestingly enough his uh, the anniversary of his death will come and go by the time uh, that he could possibly uh, come back up to, for discussion regarding that. Um, it, you know, a, a, another thing that, that seems so different from uh, today that's just like now you would think it's just so flabbergasting, the idea of syndicate baseball. Now, and before we go into, uh, you know, into how the Dodgers were able to at the end of, la, of the, I was about to say last century, but of course the 19th century, uh, how they were able to win a couple pennants. Um, can you please define for our audience Syndicate Baseball?
1: Sure. Syndicate Baseball is a situation where one owner or a group of owners own two different major league teams. It's unthinkable today. It's prohibited today. Uh, but at the time it was, um, it was I wouldn't say it's the norm, but it certainly wasn't uncommon. Um, Basically, uh, should I go ahead and talk about how this whole situation evolved?
0: Sure, please.
1: Okay, Um, Ebbets becomes a minority owner in the Dodgers in uh, January of 1898, Uh, at the same time that Charles Byrne, the club president, dies, and Ebbets then becomes the club president, although he's not the majority owner. Ferdinand Abel is still the majority owner. 1898 is an awful year for Major League Baseball and for the Dodgers. The Dodgers have an awful team, uh, and for some reason the Spanish-American War killed attendants, um, so the Dodgers lose, they, they have a terrible record, and they lose money um, at the box office. At the time, there are 12 major league teams, 12 teams in the National League. There is no American League. It's a top-heavy league, so that the teams at the bottom, like the Dodgers, are usually eliminated by Memorial Day. It's a very bad situation, and there's talk at the end of the 1898 season that they're going to contract and eliminate some teams, and Brooklyn is a prime candidate for a team to be eliminated. What's the solution? Well, there's not a lot of possibilities. Um, there is, no, there are no, uh, there are no farm systems. Uh, there's no free agency to uh, trade for players or buy players requires player talent or money, neither of which Ebbs has. But there is the possibility of syndication. And as good fortune would have it, there's a perfect candidate. right there. There There is a team in Baltimore, what is known as the old Orioles because they're not connected to the current Orioles. And you have, on one hand, you have in Brooklyn a great market and a very bad baseball team, whereas in Baltimore you have a great team that's won three pennants in the last five years and a terrible market because even though they win pennants, they're losing money. So it seems like the ideal situation to syndicate the two teams and move the best players into Brooklyn. It takes a while, but they work out the agreement. Now the two, the two people on the Brooklyn side are Ebbets and Abel. On the on the Baltimore side, you have Harry Vonderhorst, who is the owner, majority owner of the Orioles, uh, whose father made a fortune in the brewery business, and his son is basically spending it in the baseball business. You also have Ned Hanlon, who is the manager of the Orioles and also a minority uh, owner. Uh, Hanlon was described by contemporaries as looking like a slightly, con- a slightly bored bank clerk, but it was all a, a smokescreen. Uh, Hanlon was a shrewd individual. His nickname was Foxy Ned. Uh, He was a brilliant baseball manager, Hall of Fame manager, um, built the great teams, uh, Oriole teams of the 1890s, John McGraw, Wilbur Robinson, Willie Keeler, people like that. So they finally agree on the syndication, and the way the syndication is going to work is that Vonderhorst and Abel will each own 40% of the Dodgers and the Orioles, and Ebbets and Hanlon will own 10%. And then they funnel all the best, not all the best players actually, but some of the best players, Hall of Famers like Keeler, uh, Joe Kelly, uh, Huey Jennings, are funneled to Brooklyn, and Brooklyn wins the National League pennant in 1899. The hope, though, was that they were not only going to be successful on the field, they were going to sell a lot of tickets. And they don't sell anywhere near as many tickets as people thought they were going to sell. They're still profitable, but there's some speculation that maybe what's going on here is that the Brooklyn public doesn't want to support a team of hired gunslingers. Now, after the 1899 season it's finally been decided that this 12-team 12 team, 12 team league is no longer going to work. So they eliminate four teams, one of which is Baltimore. Good thing for Brooklyn because they get the money from that transaction, and they get even more players. And so in 1900, the Dodgers win the pennant again. It's a closer race, but they win their second consecutive pennant. But the box office results are even less favorable. In fact, it was suggested that the Dodgers lost money at home, and they only made money because they were such a draw on the road. But at the end of 1900, you had the Dodgers with these four owners with two consecutive pennants behind them. What would have happened after that is speculation because the American League comes on the scene in 1901, and over the next three years, they will raid the Dodgers' roster, and by the end of the 1903 season, the Dodger roster is a skeleton of what it was in 1900.
0: It's so fascinating the way life works with basically all these forks in the road, and and you know, throughout the the history of Charlie Ebbets, it, it seemed like he had instances where he had to help save the Dodgers from moving out of Brooklyn, and it, it, you know it, they obviously were not where they were when Walter O'Malley eventually just to, from 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 a, a renowned perspective. Um, but it, it it he both was able to keep the Dodgers in Brooklyn, but as 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 renowned as Ebbets was, as beloved as it was. Some people have pointed to its uh, less than adaptability uh, with, with, you know, before we get into the Ebbets Field uh, part of of everything, it's so fascinating to me regarding the Baltimore Orioles roster, the way that Wilbert Robinson and John McGraw did not become a part of of the, uh, the Brooklyn team. And and, and then those two eventually also went different directions and forced them the road. Uh, just, if you we can just slightly get into the Wilbert Robinson, John McGraw aspect of this and, and the way it, 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 it basically ended up, um, even though I, I, one of the fascinating things that also that you pointed out was the fact that Charlie Abbott thought that John McGraw would be good for the, uh the New York Giants franchise but be careful what you wish for.
1: Right, exactly. Well, in In 1899, when the uh, Oriole players come to Brooklyn, McGraw and Robinson don't want any part of it because they have deep roots in Baltimore. In addition to baseball, they have businesses there. And they're allowed to stay in Baltimore. And interestingly enough, even with the players that um, the Dodgers didn't want, they still finish in fourth place and they make money. So uh, they were still successful. Now, what happens after... um, the Orioles go out of existence after the 1899 season. And as you mentioned, um, the owners uh, of the Dodgers, especially uh, Ferdinand Abel, uh, is adamant that he wants John McGraw to come to Brooklyn. And Ebbets fights long and hard and says he shouldn't be required to come to Brooklyn and mentions that the Giants, who have this tremendous market but are not a very good team, would be the ideal place for McGraw to go. And it turns out that McGraw first goes to St. Louis, and then he goes back to Baltimore when the American League is formed, and then he jumps from the American League to the Giants and uh, becomes the manager of the Giants, and uh, Ebbets was 100% right, but uh, be careful what you wish for, because the Giants were so successful, they almost buried the Dodgers in all other competitions. So, Ebbets clearly, uh, it's it's a testimony to two things. One, to his baseball knowledge, but also that... um, he was the one who was willing to stand up for McGraw and say, you know, don't, let's not, we have a contractual right to McGraw, but we won't force him to do that. So it's, uh, it's to his credit.
0: And there seemed to be a lot of giant egos at the time. And even if, like, Abbott in some fashion had that, he seemed to have a little bit more practicality and, and also compassion for, uh, uh, for others.
1: I think that's definitely true. Ebbets was a—he was basically a good person, a decent person. Uh, He was in baseball to make money. He never—he said that constantly that this is—you know—this is a business for me. Uh, But he deeply cared about Brooklyn. Uh, He deeply cared about baseball. He was a baseball lifer, uh, and cared about the game, uh, worked for the good of the game beyond his team, uh, for his entire career, literally until months before his death.
0: And uh, talking about forks in the road, had he had success in two other fields, uh, that he could have easily, uh, you know, more success than he he may have had at the time. Uh, He may have gone those directions, and those two things are, are politics and bowling, it turns out. Right.
1: Right. Well, Ebbets was, uh, bowling was a big sport in the first 20 years of the 20th century. It was the primary winter form of activity for men, I guess, more than women. But it was a big deal, and Ebbets, was, uh, Ebbets wasn't much of a baseball player, but he was a very good bowler, among other things. He has the distinction of uh, making the 7-10 split, which uh, anybody who's ever rolled a bowling ball knows what that what that means. Um, and He was <laughs> part of a number of teams. He had his own alley at one time, and uh, was very active in the American Bowling Congress, was a uh, candidate for president a number of times, and, and that was a potential business that he was in. And ultimately got out of because he wanted to focus on baseball. In politics, he was involved in politics. He was a Democratic politician in the years before World War One. Uh, uh, held state office and city office. Um, always worked for the benefit of Brooklyn. Um, and but was. He had some success, but he certainly lost a number of elections, and that was not going to be – and you couldn't make a living in politics in those days anyway, so baseball was a better bet for him. But he certainly had other fields that he devoted time and talent to.
0: I think one should say one could say that uh, one is not supposed to make a quote unquote living in politics, but that's uh, <laughs> I think right. that's a whole other podcast as to right. what's happened to politics since Charlie Evans was uh, caught up in it. Um, let's let's, let's uh, cross over. Let's go to Ned Hanlon real quick in terms of uh, uh, what you know he had had success. He he had been a ball player as well, um, but it it seemed that there ended up being a power struggle between these two, Uh, if you can get into that a little bit.
1: Sure. Well, as as I mentioned earlier, the American League, uh, the war between the National League and the American League just uh, strips the Dodgers' roster of all its talent. And Hadlin's a great manager, so he keeps them competitive through 1904. But then, in nineteen o beginning nineteen, heading into the nineteen o five season, it's clear that the team is not doing well financially. Um, It's still the same ownership structure, but Vonderhorst is sick, and uh, Abel is semi-retired and really wants to get out. And Hanlon is no shrinking violet personality, uh, and Ebbets is really at risk of being forced out here. And so for once in his life, um, Foxy Ned gets out foxed. Ebbets arranges for a friend of his by the name of Henry Medicus to buy out Vonderhorst. Now that gives Ebbets 50% of the ownership of the Dodgers. And apparently there were enough partial shares around that with those, Ebbets had a 51% control. So he was in charge, and Hanlon was then working for him. One of the first things that Ebbets does is cut Hanlon's salary in half, which you can imagine didn't endear Hanlon to Ebbets. Um, 1905 is a disastrous season for the Dodgers on the field. They finish last, 55 games out of first place, um, and lose a lot of money. Hanlon leaves, uh, becomes manager of Cincinnati, but he's still a 10% owner of the Dodgers. And a year later, in November of 1906, The Dodgers, uh, Medicus and Ebbets and Ebbets' son and Hanlon and Abel, assemble to um, have the annual meeting of the Dodgers. And Hanlon and Abel try to pull a trick. Uh, They use a technicality to claim that Ebbets and Medicus are not legitimate Directors and owners of the Dodgers, and because of that technicality, Hanlon and Abel should be in control. And Hanlon clearly wants to take control and move the Dodgers to Brooklyn. That results in lawsuits, and the lawsuits go on and on for go on for almost a year. Finally, uh, in, sorry, in November, sorry, just
0: um, uh, I, apologies for interrupting. But you, you sure. meant Baltimore, right? I think you said Brooklyn.
1: Uh, Baltimore, uh, yeah, take the take the team to Baltimore. Um, So uh, what happened? (laughs) That's no, that's okay. Um, So a year later, uh, these lawsuits are grinding away, and Ebbets can take his chances. But he decides that he doesn't want to do that, and so in November of 1907. He starts to negotiate with Abel to buy Abel out, and he buys him out for what today seems like a small amount of money twenty thousand dollars. But the magical part of it is that he only puts five hundred dollars down, and the rest is to be paid out of notes. And so that was he must have been a brilliant salesman to get Abel to buy that because Abel didn't Abel had been in the, he'd put thousands of dollars into the Dodgers, he's getting older and he wants to get out, and yet he's settled for $500 in cash and the balance to be paid over a period of time. Uh, that puts Hanlon in a position where he's a 10% owner in the Dodgers, and you know he's, he's in no position to negotiate, so the end result is that... Um, uh, Hanlon sells out, and now Ebbets is in uh, is in control of the Dodgers, and it's really the only time um, that Ebbets Ebbets is in fact a majority owner um, in the Dodgers.
0: It, it's kind of it's uh, you know funny the way some things echo because the man who eventually uh, ended up holding the fate of the Dodgers in his hands also bought, bought into uh, uh, the Dodgers on a loan, and that was Walter O'Malley.
1: Exactly, exactly. Well, the Dodgers, you know, the Dodgers had a very troubled uh, financial history for years after uh, Ebbets died, and uh, that's why uh, O'Malley had that chance. You can just listen to me talk.
0: Uh, so, so at, at uh, that point, 1907, you know, the Dodgers are in the second Washington Park, which for anybody who is uh, familiar with Brooklyn uh, or lives in Brooklyn itself, um, if you go over to uh, 4th Avenue and uh, between 1st and 3rd Street, there is a a park that is where the first Washington Park is, where the old stone house that George Washington was in during the uh, Battle of Brooklyn, I believe. Um, But across the way is Con Edison, and that specific place is... Uh, the Washington Park, which was the last place before uh, before Ebbets built Ebbets Field, but there was just like basically crisscrossing until they they were able to find uh, the Park Slope location, or really uh, uh, once you cross into Fourth Avenue, we're talking Gowanus here. Um, but let, let's let's get into a little bit of the ballpark history uh, under Ebbets.
1: Sure. Um, first of all, it's just one thing I need to clarify: the wall that you're referring to, the Con Edison Wall, um, that's been debated. But if it is a wa- if it is, if it was part of Washington's Washington Park, it's actually the fourth Washington Park, which is where right. the Brooklyn team in the Federal League played. Uh, the Dodgers never but, played in that uh, ballpark.
0: Well, uh, right. So the, the the brick wall over there uh, is, in fact, like you said, the Brooklyn Federals or the Brooklyn Tip Tops, I believe, is also right, another exactly. name because they were owned by uh, Tip Top Red, the Tip right. Top Red Company. Exactly. Uh, owner. exactly. Um, right. But but I do believe that spot was where the wooden ballpark uh, prior to Ebbets Field was as well.
1: I think that's correct. Yeah. Um, what happened so, was that when, when Dodger when when Ebbets becomes um, President of the Dodgers, the Dodgers are playing in Eastern Park, which is in uh, East New York, um, which was far from the population centers of Brooklyn, and it had hurt the Dodgers' attendance. And so, one of Ebbets' big priorities was to get the Dodgers back into closer to the population center, preferably the, uh, near the original Washington Park. <clears throat> and it's a, um, a lot has been written about. Ebbets Field and how Ebbets did that, but the story of building the what is the second Washington Park is an equally impressive story, uh, because the first thing is that Ebbets, when he took over, he had used all his money to buy a minority ownership in the Dodgers. He didn't have any money, and the club didn't have the money to build a ballpark. So what he did was he convinced two of the trolley companies to put up the money to build the park with the idea that they would it would be built where they would get traf, uh, increased uh, trolley traffic, and that's how they would get their money back. And it took him two and a half months to get that negotiated. So the construction of Washington Park doesn't begin until the middle of March of 1898, but it's ready for opening day, the home opener of the Dodgers, May 1st, 1898. Uh, so the park was built in 45 days. Um, which is almost impossible to believe but the reason is it was a wooden ballpark and wooden ballparks had a lot of disadvantages but the one big positive was that you could build them quickly. Uh, the other thing that worked for Ebbett's benefit in this regard is that because he was the schedule maker he could arrange for the Dodgers to play on the road until the beginning of May when their park was ready um, but uh, Ebbets did twice what Walter O'Malley couldn't do once. He built ballparks
0: in Brooklyn. <laughs> that's uh, well put. And uh, it, it, it's so funny, you know, that at this time as well, over in Eastern Park, uh, you are also competing with semi-pro baseball. And, and that's rather popular in Brooklyn at the time.
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yes, no no question. Um yeah, Eastern Park it why the, the it's a, it's another story, but basically there was a, a baseball war in eighteen ninety uh, and there were two teams in Brooklyn and the war was resolved by the two teams merging, the Dodgers and the Brooklyn, um I forget what they were called, um uh, the awards wonders. Um and Part of the merger negotiation was the Dodgers agreed to move from Washington Park to um, Eastern Park, and no rational reason has ever been given for why they did that. And uh, Ebbets, uh, Ebbets years later said it was the worst decision that they ever made.
0: Yeah, it would make sense. You know, now you could, uh, uh, you know, you have the border of Queens and, and Brooklyn, and of course there's still, a lot, there are of course a lot of people over there. Uh, but at the time, you know the way Brooklyn was building up, it just didn't make uh, uh, all, didn't make any real sense. Uh, that is for sure. Um, and, and so, uh, before we get to Ebbets Field, I just want to loop back really quickly, just to talk about uh, Ebbets trying to be a manager and it not really working out for him.
1: Right. In eighteen ninety eight, um, when Ebbets took over, he inherited a man <clears throat> a manager, the man by the name of Bill Barney. Um, and there were a lot of problems the first the opening of the season, a lot of dissension in the team, so they finally had a hire um they had to fire uh, Barney. And then Ebbets turned the managerial reins over to one of the players, um, Mike Griffin. And Griffin lasted for all of four games and decided he didn't want any part of it. And so at that point, <clears throat> Ebbets decided, well, he may as well as <coughs> excuse me, he may may as well as take over as manager. And that's not as uncommon uh, at that time as it might seem, because the field captain did most of the strate- most of the game game management. Um, but Ebbets was, uh, so he was the manager for the rest of the season. They had a horrible record. He was clearly not going to be any Connie Mack, um, so he wisely, uh, as soon as that. Of course, one of the big benefits of the syndication with the Orioles was that they got a Hall of Fame manager, so that solved that problem.
0: Right, exactly. And so uh, going over to 1907, and at this point, Wooden ballparks are a real, real problem. You know, as you're getting deeper and deeper into the 20th century, uh, it's just it's obvious to everybody in baseball. So, at at what point uh, was Ebbets starting to consider uh, the land? And, and 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 just to clarify too, with with this, I when I'm talking about the first season of my my uh, uh, hypothetical show. It's basically 1937 and 1941, but the, the the building of Ebbets Field is such a fascinating story. I want to devote an entire episode to a flashback. But uh, if we could go into that a little bit.
1: Sure. Um, well, the first uh, bri- uh, concrete and steel ballparks are built in 1909 in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. Uh, and I'm sure that as soon as he found out about that, Ebbets started thinking about it. Now, Ebbets had a number of disadvantages in trying to build such a ballpark in brooklyn the biggest of which was a lack of money. The team wasn't profitable. He didn't have any family money. Um, And most of these other ballparks, Shy Park in uh, Philadelphia, Forbes Field in Pittsburgh, Fenway Park, they're all built by people who had either very strong teams that were strong financially or there was family money involved. And Ebbets doesn't have that. And so it makes it a very, it's a very difficult process. He starts no one knows exactly when he started assembling the land, but it could be, uh, you know, at least two years beforehand. Uh, and Ebbets had, I did a comparison um, as to Ebbets' experience versus his peers in terms of building their ballparks. And I, I found that Ebbets' experience by far was the hardest. Um, he had to acquire 25 to 30. 25 to 30 parcels of land and he had to do it in secrecy because if anybody found out what he was doing then they would have bid the prices up and he wouldn't have been able to afford it and even with that um, he ended up having people uh, the same thing he did with Abel people took money took uh, notes back uh, to be paid at a later date so it takes him almost two years to um, accumulate all the property then in um, January of 1912, he has this um, gala dinner where he doesn't say what it's about, but he says it's, it's going to be a big announcement about the, fu- the future of the Brooklyn Ball Club. And he announces that he's going to build this ballpark. Um, and at the time, the press said that um, nobody was that surprised that that was the subject of the announcement. They were all surprised at the location. And they were surprised because when they got there, Ebbets was the only person who could see a ballpark there. Uh, in the center of the plot of land was a hole that was so, there was a house in it. And the hole was apparently so deep that if you walked around the neighborhood at night, even if there were lights on in the house, you wouldn't see the house. The other thing, that even bigger problem, and it's interesting, <laughs> we're we're talking about Bedford and Sullivan. Bedford Avenue... Was 16 feet higher than Sullivan Street, so it's not a level a level site, um, and so the site work is going to be a nightmare. Um, and in the best of circumstances, and Ebbets doesn't have the best of circumstances. It's one of the worst winters imaginable, and it, the project. It, when he announced the, had the building, the ballpark was going to be built. He said he thought it would be. He announced it in January of 1912. He thought it would be ready for Flag Day of 1912, but he was positive that it would be ready in August of 1912 for the uh, anniversary of the Battle of Brooklyn. In fact, it doesn't open until April of 1913.
0: Uh, That's how long it takes. That that always boggled me, uh, boggled my mind because. And and, and nowadays, there's no chance a new ballpark would open in the middle of a season because as much as baseball is all about the comparison, the the comparing and contrasting the stats, it's also, you know, the fields are all different. Like, it's, it's going to be different circumstances from season to season and from ballpark to ballpark. So why they would – is there ever – any of those ballparks, those concrete and steel ballparks, if you do know, do you know if any of them opened in the middle of the season where they switched like that? It would be, you know, just like thinking about, like, like the Los Angeles Dodgers in 1960 in the middle of the season, all of a sudden going from the Coliseum to Dodger Stadium. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. I don't know about that period. I do know that the um, Pirates went from Forbes Field to Three Rivers Stadium in the middle of the season, Not summer of 1967. Well, yeah. uh, I don't know. Right. I, yeah. Um, I'm just trying to think. I mean, I know Shy Park opened um, on t- in the beginning of the season. I'm pretty sure Forbes Field did as well. Um, Fenway did. Uh, but I don't know about the others. I'm not sure.
0: Yeah, it's it's just it was always it seemed that the states uh, had it work out because what ends up, of course, happening from an exhibition perspective is you know just very very uh, poignant in terms of the history of the Dodgers and the Yankees and the Dodgers right. with Casey Stengel are able to beat the Yankees on the the faux opening day, if you will.
1: Right. The ex- which was actually an exhibition game, but yes. Um, Actually, the reason, from the financial standpoint, if Ebbets could have... Ebbets was even willing, if he could have opened the ballpark in September of 1912, he would have done so. His his idea was that if he could get the the ground level built, that had more seats than Washington Park. And so even if he just, you know... uh, uh he played games there and sold tickets just for the lower level. He could make more money than he could in uh, uh in Washington Park and he's
0: desperate for money at this point. And speaking of which, because he's des- desperate for money, he gets other ownership involved that also is a fork in the road for the the uh eventual history of the the Dodgers franchise. If exactly. you can go into what he ends up having to do.
1: One of Ebbets' great weakness weaknesses is his inability or unwillingness to think and plan long-term. If you're going to take on a project like building a ballpark, and it's never been determined how much Ebbets Field costs, but he was talking about $525,000 at the time. If you're going to do something like that, the way you do it is you get your permanent financing lined up before you start construction. Ebbets didn't do that. He just had these, he just putting it together in different ways, patching things together to the point that by the summer of 1912, he's literally going from one major league city to another, trying to borrow money from some of the other owners, um, and and they don't want any part of it. Uh, And so finally, he's forced to take on new partners, and he takes on the McKeever brothers, Steve and Ed McKeever. And at this point, uh, what he has to do is give up majority ownership, so that he owns fifty percent. The McKeever brothers own fifty percent, and it's that arrangement. You know, how do you make a decision if the two parties disagree? It seemed to have worked well while they were all alive, but Ebbets and Ed McKeever die almost simultaneously, and the situation goes downhill. and Almost, it uh, almost kills the Dodgers. Um, but at the time, uh, the McKeevers, I think maybe more indirectly than directly, bring enough money to the situation that they're able to finish uh, finish the ballpark and open it in April in April of nineteen thirteen.
0: Yeah, and uh, you know, of course, eventually they do not get along with some of the the heirs, including uh, Charlie Abbott Junior. Uh, and and he's somebody that uh, I want to know more about, um, just because it it it's hard to you know I, I I I it's always you know you're trying to build a foundation of what these the the, the people's family lives were like. Um, Charlie it, at a time when divorce was not uh, a, a you know considered was <laughs> it wasn't uh, something that was. As widespread it is, it is, as it is now, uh, Charlie and Minnie Ebbets, uh, unfortunately, have a breakup. Well,
1: Charlie, this is another example of Charlie's inability or unwillingness to think long term. Um, it's clear that um, when they were married, Minnie was pregnant with Charles Jr., so um you know, was this, did they really want to get married or were they forced to get married? You know, it's hard to say. Um, they had three other children. They had three daughters and a son. Um, but in the, uh, I think it's 1903 or something like that, uh, Ebbets meets uh, a woman by the name of Grace Knott, N-O-T-T, uh, and he becomes infatuated with her, moves out of uh, the Ebbets' home, moves in with her. Um, on one census, he's listed as being a boarder in her house. Um, uh, Grace is also married, and her husband sues for divorce and names uh, Charlie as the uh, as the other party. And he has you know, he is. I mean, there's no way of getting around that. Um, so uh, Grace is divorced, and uh, Charlie and Minnie are still married. And this goes on; they're still married through post World War One, when the new the newspapers start publishing some articles about. Mr. And, Mrs. Ebbets, Mr. and Mrs. Ebbets were involved in uh, this accident. Uh, well, they said Mr. and Mrs. Ebbets, but in fact it was Grace. It wasn't a Minnie, and Minnie didn't appreciate it. And so then she filed for divorce. Um, the problem is that in New York at the time, the only grounds for divorce is adultery. And the way that the judge looked at it was that, you know, this situation's been going on for more than a decade. You weren't upset about it then, so uh, why should I give you a divorce now? Uh, and he refuses to give her a divorce. Uh, and then to what they ultimately resort to
0: is a ploy
1: that was uh, apparently very popular at the time. Again, this is, now this is 1922. Uh, the only grounds for divorce is adultery. So what, hap- what people do- did was they put together this uh, scripted arrangement whereby the man uh, gets, goes to a hotel room with a woman who is hired for the occasion. She's not his wife, not his mistress, nothing like that. And uh, she's in the room uh, in her nightgown or something like that. And then they work it out so that a detective and a process server will immediately knock on the door and have caught the couple in the act of adultery and then they 'll go to court, and supposedly the uh, the courts the, in the court uh, the parties are reading from a script that 's a pre prepared script so that the people can get a divorce and there 's a um, there was a newspaper article in one of the tabloids where some woman claimed that uh, she was the guilty party in like a hundred of these things. Uh, you know, it was an easy way to pick up a few bucks. Uh, but Charlie and, and Charlie uh, and Grace finally get married in 1923, and they're married when uh, Charlie dies in, in April of 1925.
0: Which, of course, complicates uh, to the nth degree the estate. Um, and, and this this thing doesn 't really get settled until I believe it 's either forty three or forty four Well, the ironic thing is that that Ebbets,
1: he did a pretty good job. You know, it was a very, as you say, a very complicated situation, and Ebbets was aware of that in terms of preparing his will, and he provi- you know, he had provided for Minnie so that she didn't have any claims against the estate. Um, he, there had been a falling out with Charles Jr., so he didn't get any ownership st- stake in the Dodgers, but he got a settlement, um, and then he basically divided up the Dodgers into sh- his ownership in the Dodgers into shares, um, and. The Dodgers had been paying hefty dividends, and I think the idea was that that they thought that would continue. Um, But what Ebbets didn't provide for is any kind of succession planning, nor did the McKeevers. And Ebbets dies in April of 1925. He had been ill for quite a while. And his funeral is held on a cold, rainy day at Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn. And when they get to the cemetery, uh, the grave is not large enough to accommodate the coffin. And so everybody has to stand in the freezing rain while they enlarge the grave. And Ed McKeever, who is the more competent of the McKeever brothers, catches a cold that turns into pneumonia, and he's dead 10 days later. So now the Dodgers are owned 50% by the Ebbets heirs, who really their only concern is how much money they're going to get out of it. And the the other half were owned by the McKeever brothers, uh, the estate of Ed, and Steve McKeever, who Steve McKeever was not the most competent person and he had a knack for offending people. Um, And so – it's impossible, you know, any agreement on anything requires the agreement of all these heirs, and they can't agree on much of anything. Um, they, you know, uh, constant disagreements about um, the expansion of Ebbets Field, um, which is a story, a story worthy of Dickens. I'd be happy to get into that if you're
0: interested. <laughs> oh, for sure, but I, I just needed to, like, just talking about getting to the grave site and, and it not being big enough. It's it's just like all these comedy of errors. Uh, they they're missing the flagpole. They're missing the flag on opening day at Evans Field. Somebody has to go run and get it. They forget the keys at some point, and then they you know th- th- this this whole thing about uh, the grave not being big big enough. It, it's just it's it's hysterical. To, like it's you know it's, it's it, it it sucks uh, that it happens in that certain instances, and, and then leads to. Ed McKeever's death and, and, and that's sad but it's right. at the same time it's just it's just you got you can't help but chuckle and you know, I guess it's not too soon now. <laughs>
1: Well, you know, there's certainly the, um, you know, the comedy uh, side to it. The book that my son and I did about Ebbets Field, we entitled one chapter, History, Tragedy, and Comedy, the Brooklyn Dodgers at Ebbets Field. And we cover the games that are historic, sad, and funny. You know, the three men on a base at one time, the bird landing, coming out from uh, Casey Stengel's hat, um, you know, all those kinds of things. (laughs)
0: So, uh, by all means, let's get into, uh, uh, like you said, uh, uh, a tale of Dickens in Brooklyn. Yeah, the,
1: um, so the Ebbets, I, well, I maybe should have said this earlier, but the Ebbets field, the, the ballpark that Charles Ebbets built is not the ballpark that we remember. It's not the small, intimate ballpark with the stands, the bleachers in, in left and center field. There were no seats in the outfield in the ballpark he built. And as a result, it was the traditional dead ball era ballpark with a huge outfield. The flagpole in center field was some 500 feet away, uh, away from home plate. In the 19, and it was big enough. It had a capacity of 23,000, let's say, and it was big enough for the time. But then in the 1920s, baseball is becoming even more and more popular, and it clearly isn't big enough. Uh, and so they decide they want to expand. And it really gets to the uh, crucial point in the 1930 season. In 1930, the Dodgers contend for the pennant. They're, in fact, um, in... Uh, well into september they're in contention for the pennant even though they didn't finish that high and i i forget the number but it's double digit sellout crowds where they've had to turn away five to ten thousand people uh, and, and all that's money that's uh, uh, that they badly need and they can't get and so finally because after that The parties finally figured out a way to come together and uh, put together the expansion of Ebbets Field. Now, what they wanted to do, they wanted to extend the, uh, the fence across the, there was a street obviously behind the left field fence, and on the other side of that street was a plot of land that the Dodgers owned. And so they wanted to have the city move the street back to the plot that they owned and build out and up. But for whatever reason, they weren't able to do that, and so they had to build in and up, and that's how you got the small ballpark. But they built it in the winter of 1931, and it's ready for, I don't, it may not be opening day, but it's ready early in the season. But after all this struggle to build this expanded ballpark, no sooner do they get it built, and they don't need it. And that's the Dickens-like touch to it. You know, it's all this struggle to get this expansion <laughs> right. done, seating expansion done. You get it done, and now the Dodgers go into tailspin. The depression hits. People stop going to ball games, and they no longer need the extra seats. So that's you know, reminiscent of Bleak House, and,
0: and, right? And then eventually, of course, uh, Walter O'Malley needs even more seats uh, and right. more parking, and and again. You know, we've gone over it ad nauseum, but it it could always be another podcast at another time. I want to go to the cheap title that Dog Ebbets, both in his life and even after death, I I even read somewhere uh, his friends after his his passing joking about Charlie's cheap liquor. Uh, Where did this this cheapness, uh, uh, quote unquote, come from? Uh, you know there are a myriad
1: of stories about his cheapness um it's it, there's probably some there, there's some truth to it but it's more because he doesn't have money uh but the what my evaluation of it is is this he was in a generation that had a different attitude about money than what we do um and it's i i, I The best way I can explain it, the way I explain it in the book, is there's a uh, Tom Rice, who was a writer for the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, who knew Ebbets very well, at the time of Ebbets' death, compared Ebbets' attitude towards money to that of John D. Rockefeller. And there's a story told about Rockefeller. Um, that when Rockefeller was one of the richest men in the world, he was overcharged um, for handling his luggage on a cruise. He was overcharged $130. And Rockefeller went ballistic about it. And people were saying, you know, why do you It's such a small amount of money? Why do you care? And Rockefeller said, I need that money for overseas charity. The point is, to them, it was a sin for money to be wasted that that money could have been used for good things or important things and I think that's part of uh, that was part of Ebbett's attitude um, you know certainly when he had money he paid competitive salaries um, I don't I
0: you know he's
1: of uh, the stories a lot of times you find some of those stories aren't true he certainly did things and said things like that but he also uh, he he wasn't he certainly wasn't as cheap as he was made out to be let me put it that way
0: right exactly um and i'm curious just for for your uh, from your perspective in terms of the eagle the brooklyn daily eagle and it being such a a rich source of research for you and, and for me i mean i i've just been having Uh, A thrill seeing some of these pages and and some of the, I even came across one around the time of, of, uh, as as the conflict is starting to erupt in Europe, there was this one little, little, little article that I found that said, uh, China China most likely not to become communist, which is just so hysterical to me in, in retrospect. Uh, but but what what was the what was researching the the Brooklyn Daily Eagle like for you? how, how did how, was it as as just you know even for the stuff that you didn't include was it just thrilling to to look through that?
1: Absolutely. When the first book that a book the first book my son and I did about the Brooklyn basically about the Brooklyn Dodgers was about the 1916 pennant race, the Dodgers' first 20th century uh, National League pennant, and at that time. The only place I could get the eagle uh, was at Alexander Library at Rutgers on microfilm, and so I, would sp- I spent countless hours there going through the microfilm. Now, that's one year. Ebbets' career is over 40 years. Fortunately, by the time I got around to Ebbets, the full run of the eagle is available online, and uh, the book would never have been written uh, were it not for that. Now, what I feel a little bit bad about is that since the book was written, the other three Brooklyn newspapers for the same period are also now available online. Um, and those are, that's a neglected source. The Standard Union, the Brooklyn Citizen, and the Brooklyn Daily Times, um, all covered the Dodgers. Um, you know, when I did the Ebbets Field book, when I did, I, writing about the, the building of Ebbets Field, I was able to go to those newspapers, again, on Microform at the time. And there's a lot of good material in those papers as well. So, uh, but it, they're, they're fantastic resources. I'm, it's amazing how, you know, I've been doing this maybe 15 years. I mean, it's amazing how the research has, been, has become so much easier.
0: Yeah, you know, just being able to, on my phone, basically do what you had to go and scroll through so much microfilm, uh, it, it, it's just, you know, it's, it's like, you know, it's for comparison, it's like going from having to spread the map out on the dashboard versus GPS. We can hardly right. even remember what it was like when we had to do that. Um, so just out of curiosity, and I um, I do want to get to the pennant winning seasons regard in context of Charlie Evans, uh, but... I, as I look through the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, it does seem to be, in many ways, the New York Times of Brooklyn. So, what what was the uh, you know from the white collar to blue collar uh, spectrum of the other uh, Brooklyn? Because uh, I've hardly looked at the other ones so far. So yeah, I'm, you know, I'm really not, this sure. This I'm really not sure. I'm really not sure.
1: I'm sorry. I mean to cut you yes. off. Um, I'm really not no, sure. The, the, I agree with you. The Eagle was the Brooklyn was the New York Times of Brooklyn. Certainly at that point. I mean, you look at uh, the Eagle during Ebbets' uh, time. It's a it's definitely a, a very serious paper uh, with uh, detailed coverage. The other ones, I'm not sure what their particular um, specialties or markets were. Uh, but one one interesting story about the Eagle and researching Ebbets. Um, when I tried to research Ebbets' career before he becomes president in 1898, I was doing searches for Ebbets with one T, and nothing came up, literally maybe a half a dozen entries for like 13 years. And I couldn't figure out what was going on because he had to have been in the paper. And then for some reason, I put a second T on the name. That's, it's spelled with one T but for some reason the papers the eagle spelled it with two uh and as soon as i put the second t in there uh i got all kinds of entries for every year so huh.
0: that's fascinating yeah i wonder Funny why how that happened uh, occurred yeah and eventually charlie goes oh by the way it's uh one t please one t yeah um <laughs> So you are listening to the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast. We have Charlie Evitts' biographer, John G. Zinn, on the uh, podcast. Uh, um, and I, I want to, uh, before we go, I'd like to talk about those pennant winning features. The first time uh, that Charlie Ebbets in the 20th century made a World Series, uh, uh, um, unfortunately losing first to the Boston Red Sox in five games and then to the Cleveland Indians, uh, I believe also in five games in 1920. Um, so, just what from your research, uh, from the perspective of Charlie, it must have been a thrill, even though unfortunately they lost those.
1: Exactly, I had mentioned talking about the 1899 and 1900 pennant winning teams. I mentioned that they didn't draw well, and the thought was that the people of Brooklyn would not support a team of hired guns, and so Ebbets is now got to find another way to build his team and he does that basically he hires a man by the name of Larry Sutton who is um, one of the he's not the first scout but one of the one of the first uh, baseball scouts Um, and who who found Casey Stengel, Zach Wheat um, a number of the stars of the uh, of the 1916 pennant winning season team Um, and so that team is basically built from within now there are no farm teams so you know, you don't come up through the farm system, but they're all players who uh, Ebbets and Sutton found and developed in Brooklyn, um, and 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 then they they topped it off by bringing in, um, especially Jack Combs, who was a great pitcher for the uh, Athletics, but who had been sick and injured, seriously ill, came back and had a great season with the Dodgers, and so they basically filled in. Uh, and then won a very close pennant race, pennant race that came. It's interesting. There are only two in the National League there are only two close pennant races during the dead ball era. One is the iconic 1908 pennant race, and the other is 1916 that not a lot of attention is paid to. But the Dodgers in the last week of the season beat out the Giants, more the Phillies and the Braves, but also the Giants to win a very close pennant race. And as you say, they lost to the, uh, the Red Sox in five games. Uh, very close in the first two games, including the second game, which was a 14-inning uh, pitcher's duel uh, between um, uh, Smith of the Dodgers and um, Babe Ruth. Uh, then as far as 1920 is concerned, um, Stengel has some falling out with uh, Stengel and Jake Galbert, some of the best players on the other teams, over money uh, and he trades them, and he. But he rebuilds the team, and in 1920 the Dodgers catch fire, uh, and it's not a. Cl- it's close into September, but from the middle of September on, the Dodgers run away uh, and hide from the. Uh, it's the Giants, and uh, they fin- They go into the World Series, and actually, that World Series lasted seven games because it was in the. It was one of the best of nine mm. World Series. Um, right. The Dodgers won two of the first three, and then Cleveland won four games in Cleveland, one of which, of course, is the famous game uh, where uh, Elmer Smith hit the first Grand Slam in World Series history. And um, I'm going to pronounce it wrong. Billy Womgus made the only unassisted, play, unassisted triple play in the history of the World Series, both in the same game.
0: And somewhere in my research, I saw that uh, Burley Grimes gave up the first grand slam World Series history, I believe, in this, in this uh, particular series as well.
1: That's, he was the pitcher in that, uh, in that inning, yeah, in that start of the game. He was a 20-game winner for the Dodgers, but um, right. obviously didn't work out.
0: He's a, yeah, he's a character in my pilot, that's for sure, because he's the manager of the 1938 Brooklyn Dodgers. But that's a, a, right. another story for another day. Uh, before we go, since we, we talked about how with Ebbets, be careful what you wish for regarding John McGraw, once he was uh, planted into the Giants uh, uh, and, and for 20 years after that, what was the relationship like between Charlie Ebbets and John McGraw?
1: I think it was hard to have a good relationship with John McGraw if you were on any part of an opposing team. <laughs> um, you, know,
0: you
1: know, they, um, you know, they were involved in quarrels. But um, the quarrels, Ebbs's dealings would more have been with the owners. And um, uh, a man by the name of John Brush was the owner of the Giants between uh, until 1912. And he was, uh, he was, he would be in the, in the owner's circles. He would be like John McGraw. He was a very different Difficult, tough man, and got his way most of the time. Uh, and Ebbets, you know, Ebbets went against him a number of times. I don't, you know, um, I don't remember any particular special outcomes. Brush is the one who, in um, the early years of the 20th century. Uh, he and some of his collaborators tried to put together a a baseball trust whereby um, all the teams would be owned by a trust which would allocate the players amongst the eight teams. Um, And whether that idea had a chance of succeeding or not, they spelled out the ownership percentages and Brooklyn would have had the lowest ownership percentage. There would not have been equitable ownership arrangements. And so Ebbets fought. That and with three other owners, and they successfully defeated it. Uh, but there was certainly a lot of uh, a lot of conflict between the Dodgers and the Giants in those days at every level.
0: And that that is also speaks to uh, you know the idea that Brooklyn was the forgotten city, and that right. it, it was constantly just just you know eh, you know whatever we can we can live we can give uh, take or leave the the Brooklyn Dodgers the Brooklyn ball club, um, and. Uh, yeah, it it that that whole thing. Uh, what uh, God? I'm. Uh, it was John T. Brush and uh, originally who was part of the Cincinnati Reds. Who was the the um, the other guy that that was such a, a big part of the early uh, stages of your book regarding this? You know, now, Andrew of, Andrew, Andrew Friedman. I'm sorry, Andrew. Friedman. Yeah, and, yeah. 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 Exactly. Now Friedman is a really. And, I, and, I, I, Oh no, please go ahead.
1: Uh Friedman is uh, <clears throat> a very difficult character. I mean
0: he uh he didn't care
1: what he destroyed in order to get his own way. Um, and ultimately Brush buys him out. Um uh, but uh he, there were all kinds of uh Uh, you read the minutes of the National League owners' meetings, and Friedman at one point just refuses to come. He just boycotts the entire thing. Hmm. Actually, Brush does the same thing. After the 1908 um, the Merkel controversy, uh, Brush starts boycotting the owners' meetings because uh, Harry Pulliam, the president of the National League, ruled against him.
0: And it seemed that everybody uh, eventually came around to to try to recognizing that Friedman was bad for the sport, and and they all helped get him out of the of the game. And he, I think he wanted
1: out too. He didn't enjoy. He didn't really enjoy being an owner. Brush, he really he, loved being an owner. I mean, it was very important to him. And he was and he was a good owner, very successful owner.
0: Have you been over to the refurbished stairway uh, near Polo Ground?
1: I have Down not. Not been
0: over there. No. Uh, they did a really good job with it one way or another, good. but it, it's interesting because I, I, you know, just to learn, you just hear that name and it dedicated to him, but then you, you know, go going deeper into it, you can see how, how uh, complicated, uh, just how complicated human beings are, uh, let alone these baseball mechs. Um, I, I, I'm trying, I had uh, something... Regarding, uh, I'm trying to think, oh yeah, we can't leave here without talking about the 1909, December 1909 uh, uh, b- uh, baseball meeting, baseball celebration of the Pittsburgh Pirates, but where Charlie Abbott, uh, uh ironically, it was he was replacing the Giants owner who was indisposed at the time, but he right. makes the comment that everybody, that everybody mocks, and that is baseball is in its infancy right as as you say
1: he's filling in he's filling in for john brush and um off the top of his head says that makes the comment that baseball is in its infancy and you know people are laughing at him one of the other um uh, somebody yells out well you uh, He's baseball's been around since 1839, so it's pretty young infant. But he was right. I <laughs> mean, you know, uh, compared if you compare what baseball was like in 1909 to what it's like today, um, he was right on. Uh, Tom Rice, the writer for the Eagle, again said that when Ebbets would say something and everybody would laugh at him, and then maybe uh, five to ten years later, everybody came around to what to Ebbetts' um, way of thinking, and, and we really shouldn't leave Ebbetts without pointing out his major contribution, not just to baseball, but to all professional sports, which is the, uh, the concept of the reverse order draft or the reverse order in standings of, uh, of getting new players. Um, when Ebbets was an owner, became an owner, there was only one draft. It was the minor league draft, today's Rule Five draft, where major league teams could draft a certain number of players from minor league teams. And at the time, the way the draft order was established was that the team pulled, pulled you pulled your names out of a out of a hat. So the Giants, who were the best team in baseball, could conceivably get the first choice. Um, and no one thought there was anything wrong with that and Ebbett started the idea that he, what may not have been his original idea but he fought for years with the idea that for the idea that that should be done in the reverse order of standing so the team that finishes last should get the first choice on new talent and later in his career, he fought for that in terms of waivers, the players being put on waivers. The team with the worst record got the first choice on waivers. Now, today, that's the, that's the norm in every professional sport. Uh, and Ebbets was, the, it was, you know, again, probably not his initial idea, but he fought for it for decades until it was finally accepted. And I, it's a tremendous monument to, uh, to one person.
0: It really is, and I think that's another uh, chip on the Hall of Fame shoulder um, that you could possibly argue for. Uh, Absolutely. Just even though he did not win a World Series, uh, he left an indelible impression on not just baseball but all of sports.
1: Exactly, exactly. And he
0: did literally
1: months before he died, he convinced the owners to change the World Series to the current 2-3-2 format. And even though it's mm. changed how that, who, who gets the home field advantage, um, that two, three, two, 2 yeah two three two has continued since 1925, the first year that it was instituted. So,
0: so since right now there's so much about negotiations when it comes to baseball, uh, uh, we were supposed to have pitchers and catchers today, and unfortunately there's no pitchers and catchers, and Matt Harvey is testifying about, about <laughs> pills. It's just you know just not a good day for baseball, so what could baseball learn from Charlie Ebbets as well as that era of of you know relationship i think the
1: I think there's two things: one is that um you as an owner and and as, i guess anyone involved in baseball, you have to strike a balance between your own interests and the greater good of the sport. Ebbets certainly fought and worked for his team primarily, but he was always in owners' meetings, speaking up for things that he thought would improve the game. And he would say, "I'm um, for this, even if it's going to, you know, if it's going to cost me money, I'm still for it." Uh, you know, having decent visiting team locker rooms, uh, which he didn't have, but he fought to make it mandatory, even though it was going to cost him money. The other thing is that Ebbets you know, he was he said constantly, I'm not in business. I'm not in baseball for my health but he believed in Brooklyn and he put he made that a priority and the the best example of it is in the very first year that he was the president club president in eighteen ninety eight. The club is Dying at the box office, and in I think it may have been Labor Day, they were supposed to play the Giants at Washington Park in a doubleheader, and it was suggested let's move the games to the Polo Grounds. It's a much bigger ballpark; you'll make more money as a visiting team there. And it was not uncommon to do that at the time. And Ebbets is quoted in a newspaper. He said even if they give me a hundred percent of the revenue at the Polo Grounds, as opposed to getting zero at Washington Park, I will never move games out of Brooklyn, uh, and he was he believed in Brooklyn. And so I think you know I think those are the two things, examples that can be translated.
0: Uh, fascinating. It's, it's just the way it all ended up working out, uh, in many ways, just because of like you said, uh, not being able to look towards the long-term. And I think that we can all learn a lesson from just, I mean, like how are you supposed to know that that if Walter O'Malley would come across, uh, that, that that would be the era of eminent domain, that, that there would be uh, the thought of westward expansion, all these things you can't necessarily look towards. Uh, right. But, you know, the, again, you said it was a fault of his. And it, it, it's unfortunate, but uh, there's still a lot to be learned one way or another.
1: Absolutely. And the the connection, he's the one, he really built the connection between the Dodgers and Brooklyn. And so no matter how bad things got in the 1920s and the 1930s, when you got competent management in there in DeRocher and McPhail, that that, uh, that connection would come back. And, And it certainly did.
0: It certainly did. Uh, You have been listening to the Bedford & Sullivan podcast. We have had John G. Zinn, a biographer of Charlie Evans, on the program, and we thank him profusely for doing so. And before we go, we always like to finish with a last word, John. But before you uh, give us your final word, uh, whether it's one word or whether it's a sentence or a paragraph or whatever, please give us the shameless plug, not only for the book, but for your entire breadth of work, for, for uh, uh, where everybody can find you, where uh, people can, can look for you, please, go ahead.
1: Thank you. Uh, Bless you. Um, I've written five books: three about the Brooklyn Dodgers, one about New Jersey baseball, and one about a New Jersey Civil War regiment. Uh, If you go to our website um, zinbooks.com, you'll see the books, and um, you can connect you there to the appropriate pages. I also write a blog on baseball history called A Manly Pastime, um, and you can uh, uh, it's. You you can find that easy enough. Um, I believe on the website, uh, you can contact me through the website if you'd like to, but my email address is jzinn84 at comcast.net. Um, And as far as the final word is concerned, what I'll say is this, is that I said something a moment ago about uh, Ebbets was the one who built the connection between the Dodgers and Brooklyn. Uh, And the reality is that the Dodgers and Ebbets Field are gone forever, but they will never die.
0: Thank you very much for having me absolutely well said john and and thank you again for joining us tonight and and i'm going to have to uh, look up your other dodger books uh you're welcome to come back anytime and uh, you know as we were talking about uh before we got on air about new jersey and how i've been uh able to take in more of new jersey than i ever had as a lift driver over the last uh, uh three years i am very interested to see that new jersey baseball book because i think sometimes uh because of the region, New Jersey flies under the radar, and that would be a fascinating read uh, for sure. So thank you again for joining us.
1: Again, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Take care.
0: And thank you all for listening, as always, to the Bedford & Sullivan Podcast. Uh, catch us next week. We're going to have a, a legacy talk with uh, Uh, Nick Davis, filmmaker of uh, Once Upon a Time in Queens, about the 1986 Mets, as well as Greg Prince, who is uh, Faith and Spirit of Flushing, and you guys have all heard him talk about the legacy of uh, National League Baseball in New York. So join us next Tuesday. Take care.